Hello and welcome to Words of Wisdom, a podcast dedicated to reflecting on the wisdom of the Book of Proverbs. Your host is Dr. Jerry Weirwall, who will share life-giving truth from Proverbs that will help us become wise and discerning. Wisdom is a journey, and we hope you will join us for this exciting adventure. Proverbs 18.17 says, The first person to present his case in a dispute seems right until a neighbor comes and questions him. After reading this proverb, it might initially seem that the proverb is only one line long. And that is probably because identifying a line break is not as straightforward and simple as in other proverbs. However, there are really no single line proverbs, especially in chapters 10 through 22 in the book of Proverbs. And this is because Hebrew poetry doesn't work that way. Every proverb is almost always a multiple of two lines because of the structure of Hebrew parallelism, which functions as the predominant form for biblical poetry. Thus, this proverb can be divided as such. The first line reads, the first person to present his case in a dispute seems right. And then the second line reads, until a neighbor comes and questions him. Now, perhaps it is easier to see the proverb's couplet, but nevertheless, we still need to identify what sort of parallelism is being employed in the proverb. I think we can rule out that it's not synonymous parallelism, since the second line is not restating a similar meaning to the first line. Therefore, it's either antithetic or synthetic parallelism. The way that we can discern between these two forms of parallelism is whether or not the second line recapitulates a similar but opposing idea to the first line, or if the second line completes the thought of the first line. To make that determination, we can simply ask ourselves, do the neighbor's questions stand in contrast to the person presenting their case in the first line? Or do the neighbor's questions complement and bring out an additional point that relates to the first line? I hope the answer can be readily apparent that the second line is adding complementary information to the first line. And thus, we can conclude that the proverb is employing synthetic parallelism. With identifying the poetic structure of the proverb out of the way, let's get into the proverb and look more closely at what it is communicating. In the first line, the Hebrew words translated to present his case in a dispute are often used to convey a legal court hearing. But while this judicial language can apply a person's testimony in an official court case capacity, it doesn't necessarily have to. The Hebrew words can also be functioning in a more figurative poetic way to conjure up in the mind of the reader the imagery of a courtroom and the legal battles that wage between plaintiff and defendant. And this is completely appropriate because the nature of what happens in a courtroom in an official capacity is similar to what happens in an unofficial and casual capacity in our daily lives. Imagine you're running late to work. And when you arrive, your boss accuses you of being tardy because he thinks you probably overslept and then rushed out the door when you realized what time it was. But you promptly reply and explain that you woke up at the usual time you do every day and you actually left for work earlier than usual with plenty of time to spare. You further elaborate that as you were traveling into the city on the highway, you got pulled over by a police officer. And that is the reason that you were late. Your boss might then retort with, oh, really? Well, isn't that unfortunate? That is actually the same reason Stuart down the hall gave two weeks ago, but it ended up he was just covering for the extra stop he made for donuts and coffee that morning. 
And so, in order to prove your claim about being pulled over by the police officer, you pull out the ticket from your pocket that the officer gave you, and you point out the date and time printed on the ticket. After providing this hard evidence, your boss might look at you and say, huh, would you look at that? You actually did get a ticket. And then could mutter as he or she walks away, you do the crime, you do the time. What this hypothetical scenario presents is a little mini court case that happens between you and your boss. But let's run through real quick how it went. First, something happened to you. You were late to work. And so you gave your reason to explain the incident. But your boss raises an accusation against you. You deny the charge. So then your boss offers a counter premise to substantiate his accusation. And in response, you reveal direct evidence to validate your testimony, thereby proving your story to be true. We have probably all done this countless times in our lives, whether it's with our parents and siblings over who broke something in the house, or with school friends over which one of them got everybody in trouble with the principal, or fellow athletes over whose fault it was that they lost the match, and so on and so forth. Likely, most of the incidents that we remember probably stem from when we were younger and were embroiled in so many he said, she said arguments. But these types of circumstances didn't stop when we became adults. We still encounter many of the same forms of argument that we did when we were younger. It's just now about different things, and perhaps maybe a little more civil and polite. But not necessarily. Us adults can still act quite childish at times, right? Now before moving on to the second line of the proverb, there is an Old Testament biblical record that I want to summarize from Joshua chapter 22. As the record goes, in the land of Canaan, the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were returning back to their land east of the Jordan River after leaving the sons of Israel at Shiloh. But before crossing the Jordan, they built an altar by the Jordan. And it says that the sons of Israel heard a report about the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh building an altar on the edge of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on their side of the river. And so all the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and prepared to go to battle against the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh on the basis of the report they received. Now, before we presume that the Israelites are acting too rashly, God gave a commandment prohibiting the building of any altars than those he commanded so that the people would not worship other gods. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. So the Israelites are quite right to be alarmed at this report they were hearing. And they were preparing to carry out the command of God against the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh because God said that they are to utterly destroy those who worship other gods and lead the people astray. And that's in Deuteronomy 13, verses 12 through 16. But before marching the army all the way out and going to battle, God commanded that the people of Israel inquire, probe, and investigate thoroughly the matter before rendering judgment upon the idolatrous people or town. If it proved true that they were practicing idolatry, then the people of Israel were to destroy them. And so the people of Israel sent the priest, Phinehas, and ten leaders to do exactly that, investigate the accusation from the report they heard. And when Phineas and the ten leaders arrived and questioned the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, 
they found out that they built the altar not for sacrificing animals and worshiping other gods, but as a memorial and witness between their people on the east side of the Jordan River and the rest of the people of Israel on the west side. The sons of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh feared that their descendants might become viewed as outcasts from the rest of the people of Israel and that they would not be considered part of Israel any longer. Therefore, the sons of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh told Phinehas that they built the altar memorial in order to be a witness and to prove to future generations of Israelites on the west side of the Jordan that their descendants worshipped Yahweh God just as they do. And so Phinehas and the ten leaders returned to the people of Israel who were ready to go to battle and destroy the sons of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh and told them what they had learned from their investigation. And their answers pleased the people of Israel, and they did not talk any more about going to battle against the sons of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. The Israelites demonstrate exactly what the second line of the proverb is saying. The first person to present his case in a dispute seems right until a neighbor comes and questions him. When the first person is questioned, you can determine if they are right or not. The idea here of the neighbor, which is just standing generically for another person, coming and questioning the testimony of the first person should not be taken in the sense of conveying their outright disbelief in the person's testimony. But rather, it refers to the process of simply cross-examining and investigating the truthfulness of the account in order to confirm or deny its validity. The need for a person to ask questions is utterly essential. Hasty judgments are made when all the details are not collected and taken into consideration. Hence, the first person to speak might seem to be in the right, that is, righteous. But the truth comes out only when all the evidence is weighed and evaluated appropriately. And that information can only be obtained by further inquiry and clarification. Now, in order to illustrate the wisdom of this proverb, I want to summarize a movie plot that perfectly conveys what the proverb is talking about. The movie is called My Cousin Vinny, and it was a box office hit that was released in 1992. However, I must issue a warning that the following description about the movie does contain spoilers. Therefore, proceed at your own risk. As the plot begins, two New Yorkers Billy Gambini and his friend Stan Rothenstein. They were on their way to UCLA for college, and they decided to take a southern route through the United States to get to California. At some point in the state of Alabama, they stop at a local convenience store to buy some snacks. Not long after leaving the convenience store and driving down the road, they were pulled over and arrested for murder and robbery because the clerk was found shot dead at the convenience store, and the description of the assailants and their car matched that of Billy and Stan and their car. Billy and Stan can't believe it, and they don't know what to do. After being taken into custody, they start panicking because they're going to face capital punishment for this crime that they claim they didn't commit. They are hundreds of miles away from home with no money and no friends in the area. But then, Billy remembers that there is a lawyer in his family. His cousin, Vincent Gambini, 
The plot thickens when the first day of court arrives and three eyewitnesses testify to seeing individuals matching Billy and Stan's physical appearance and a car that matched theirs, including the exact color fleeing the scene of the crime after hearing gunshots at the convenience store. Billy and Stan are petrified at the case that has been levied against them. The evidence seems straightforward, with three eyewitness testimonies in agreement. The verdict appears to be a foregone conclusion as the prosecuting attorney sits down after presenting his case, taunting them with a glib smirk on his face. Furthermore, Billy's cousin Vinny doesn't seem to know what to do with all the evidence that has been presented and stumbles his way through a rather unsuccessful and disheveled cross-examination. Earlier, before going to court when Billy and Stan had met with Vinny, Vinny acted all cool and confident and told them that he knew what the district attorney was going to do. He said, he's going to show you the bricks. He will show you that they got straight sides. He will show you how they got the right shape. He will show them to you in a very special way so that they appear to have everything a brick should have. But there's one thing he's not going to show you. When you look at the bricks at the right angle, they're as thin as this playing card. His whole case is an illusion, a magic trick. It has to be an illusion, because you're innocent. Nobody, I mean nobody, pulls the wool over the eyes of a Gambini, especially this one. However, at the end of the first day in court, Billy's cousin Vinny is flummoxed. He doesn't know how he is going to prove Billy and Stan are innocent, but he is certainly determined to figure it out. What makes matters even worse for Billy and Stan is that the prosecuting attorney then brings in an FBI specialist who does a chemical analysis of the rubber from the tire marks at the convenience store and matches it to the exact tires on Billy's 1964 Buick Skylark. Now, not only are there three eyewitnesses that they say they saw Billy and Stan driving away after the gunshot at the store, but there is scientific evidence that it was their car which peeled out from the store parking lot as they were making their getaway. If the case against Billy and Stan didn't seem tough enough to begin with, it now seemed utterly impossible to overturn the impending decision of the jury. But over several days of carefully questioning the witnesses and examining their circumstances and testimonies, Vinny thinks he has good reasons to doubt the accuracy of the witnesses' testimonies. First, he demonstrates that the timing claimed by the first witness, Sam Tipton, was at least 20 minutes not the five minutes he originally claimed because he was cooking home-style grits, and therefore it couldn't possibly have been only five minutes. Second, Vinny demonstrates the poor vision of the elderly Mrs. Riley, who claimed that she saw Billy and Stan get into the car and drive off, by showing that she can't even recognize how many fingers Vinny is holding up while standing half the distance away from her that she was from the car when claiming to have seen Billy and Stan fleeing the store. And thirdly, Vinny shows that the country redneck Ernie Crane's testimony about the two men in a green convertible at the store was made through a dirty window with a rust-covered screen and was further obscured by tree branches and seven bushes in his front yard. Lastly, 
As Vinny was examining a photo of the tire marks at the convenience store, he noticed that the car left flat, even tire marks, both on the road and curb as it was driving away. Well, the next day at the final hearing for the case, Vinny calls his fiance Lisa to the witness stand because she grew up in her father's auto repair garage and knew everything about cars. Vinny asks her to look at the photo and to tell the court if Billy's car could have made those tire marks. After looking carefully over the photo, she has the same epiphany that Vinny did the night before and explains to the court that the Buick Skylark had a solid axle that connected the two wheels and therefore would make a tilted tire mark due to the uneven weight of the suspension on each tire, not a flat even impression in both tires. But since the tire marks were both flat and even, that meant the car that had made the marks had both posi traction and an independent wheel suspension system, giving equal weight to the tires on both the curb and the road. And so, Lisa confirms that the car that made the tire tracks could only have been one of two models, the Chevy Corvette or the 1963 Pontiac Tempest, a car with approximately the same size and general appearance as Billy's 64 Buick Skylark. And so Lisa also confirmed for the jury that both the Tempest and the Skylark models were available in both the same metallic mint green paint that was produced by General Motors that year. And in order to seal the deal, Vinny brings in the local sheriff who had done a record check on the police report for Vinny. And he verified that two men resembling the appearance of Billy and Stan were arrested a few days ago in Georgia for driving a stolen metallic mint green Pontiac Tempest and were in possession of a 357 pistol, which was the same caliber that was used to murder the clerk at the convenience store. Well, in the end, Billy and Stan were exonerated from all charges against them and were free to go. What this illustration shows is that sometimes things may really look like they are true and accurate, but upon closer scrutiny, they may be found to be false. We should be aware that we all have a tendency to assume that when we receive information about something that seems to make sense, we usually think it is probably correct. But the first explanation we hear is sometimes only half the story. And even if it seems to be right, we need to be aware that we probably don't know everything we need to in order to make a decision or form a conclusion about it. We should ask questions and verify information so that we are not unintentionally deceived or misled by the first answer we get. This is the wisdom of the proverb. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Words of Wisdom podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would be so appreciative if you would share this podcast with your friends. And if you have been blessed by this work, please consider supporting the podcast by clicking on the donation link in the description.